Good morning. Today we hear from Acts, in which the Holy Spirit appears to the Gentiles while receiving the news of Christ from Peter. Let us open our hearts and minds to be transported across time and space as if to hear this story for the first time. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God amongst us, thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last September, I attended a virtual conference on religious leadership, where the keynote speaker, Ron Heifetz, talked about something called adaptive leadership. Now, we've heard Kent talk about adaptive challenges in past all-parish meetings. Adaptive challenges are, are challenges where we need to adapt our way of thinking in order to be able to solve them, versus technical challenges where the knowledge to fix it is concrete and available, like calling a plumber to fix a leaky pipe. Heifetz used the example of the history of the Jewish people, his people, and how Jewish leaders helped their tradition adapt to the circumstances of persecution and diaspora, and thus enabled the tradition to live on and grow by becoming a portable people. For example, when the temple was no longer available after being destroyed, and it couldn't be the focus of religious life anymore, Dietary laws, keeping Sabbath, home practices emerged as primary ways for Jewish people to hold on to and pass down their religion. Adaptive leadership is adaptive leadership is what happens when leaders open themselves up to the possibility that a cultural shift needs to happen in order to meet a challenge, and then help guide their community through that cultural shift or adaptation in as non-anxious a way as possible knowing that it isn't their responsibility to keep others happy, but to be compassionate, differentiated, and perseverant. It means listening to feedback with a humble curiosity, listening for what's being said behind the feedback, and it means showing empathy and validating the feelings of fear or frustration, while nevertheless staying the course, even when the changes make us or our community anxious and frustrated. Peter was very much an adaptive leader. As Presbyterian minister Pendleton Peary puts it, Peter was an adaptive leader before adaptive leaders were cool. Peter stood tall and steady in a time when the future of the church was murky at best. In many ways, because of Peter's commitment and Peter's responsibility and Peter's wisdom, 
the body that has become the church caught a foothold and began to grow. But, Peary continues, the Holy Spirit couldn't leave well enough alone. Just when Peter thought he had navigated the toughest challenges, the Holy Spirit started crossing boundaries that seemed out of bounds. And it wasn't just baptizing Gentiles, as we heard in today's scripture story. See, by the time we get to where Peter is at in today's scripture reading, the Holy Spirit has already put Peter through the ringer. You see, before Peter gets to Caesarea, God sends him a vision offering him a banquet full of trafe food, that is, food that is absolutely not kosher, and food that, as a devout Jew, Peter wasn't even supposed to touch, let alone eat. And God says to Peter, get up, Peter, and eat. Peter's confused and is like, "Uh, God, you know I'm not supposed to. This food is profane and unclean. And God basically says to him, Peter, I made all of this. If I made it, it isn't profane or unclean. You're good. This happens twice more before it fully sinks in. And Peter is then summoned by a man named Cornelius to meet him in Caesarea, where upon his arrival, he begins to preach to a group of Gentiles what he has learned from God. Now to hammer home the message, the Holy Spirit interrupts him and pours out on all who are in attendance, Jews and Gentiles alike, and provides them with the gifts of the Spirit. So Peter says, well, if God just baptized these folks with the Holy Spirit, who are we to say we shouldn't baptize them with water as well? And all the Gentiles were baptized into this new tradition. And this is a big deal, because in Peter's context, up until these Holy Spirit interventions, this movement, what Luke called the way, it was still a part of Judaism. It was a denomination of sorts, like the Sadducees or the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots. Peter believed that in order to join the way, you had to first convert to Judaism, and that meant keeping kosher, getting circumcised, and so on. So after pondering this vision and his initial encounters with Cornelius, Peter reflects, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Jews and Gentiles, Anyone who fears God and and does what is right is acceptable to God. And that brings us up to speed with what's going on in the story we heard from our liturgist. Now, Pendleton Peary imagined a list of questions that Peter might have been mulling over as he worked to be a faithful, adaptive leader. And I'm going to quote that list. I encourage you that if one of these questions resonates with you, write it down. And you have my permission to pause the worship video if you need more time to write it. I invite you to pray over it this week. Think about where this question is showing up in your life or in the life of the church. I'd love, I'd honestly love to hear what you come up with. So God says to Peter, what God has made you shall not call profane. And then the Holy Spirit baptizes everybody. And I can just hear Peter inwardly groaning, really, we're crossing that line? He might have been wondering, How will I explain all of this to brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? If the Gentiles are to be a part of the church, how will we maintain our identity as God's chosen people? Is this an isolated incident, or is it the beginning of a new chapter? How will the structure we have built around the faith handle this change? Do I have enough energy to meet this challenge? And 
how can I be expected to be a leader in the church if I can't predict or understand these questions? I'll tell you that the two that resonated with me the most are, how will the structure we've built around the faith handle this change? And how can I be expected to be a leader in the church if I can't predict or understand these questions? You see, COVID and the ways that we connect and worship in its wake have been major adaptive challenges. And as Peter well knew, adapting isn't just about doing new things, but about letting go of things, even treasured things that served a great purpose well in the before times. But the now times maybe require a different approach or needs need to be met differently. When we find ourselves resisting what we intellectually might know is a necessary adaptation or evolution, it's often because we feel we're losing something. You know, people don't fear change, they fear loss. Nobody says, wow, I just got a winning lottery ticket. This is really going to change my life. Maybe I should just toss it. And if you do say that, well, then you can give me your winning lottery ticket if it will make you feel better. You know, we might not be afraid of or even against the idea of worshiping in Willett Hall during the summer, for example. But we fear losing, even if only for three months, that familiarity, the spiritual-emotional association, the sense of transcendence that we've come to associate with the physical space of our sanctuary. And yet, we try it out, and we find that the Spirit moves us to an imminent worship experience that sends our voices soaring in song despite the buzz of fans in a well-lit, decidedly uncathedral like worship space. Here's another example. About a year into my time at United Parish, the church I grew up at underwent the open and affirming process, meaning among many things that they were discerning whether to officially and formally approve of hiring LGBT clergy, of performing same-sex weddings, of having gay and queer members in their midst. Now, this was a church that already had gay members. This was a church that had had a lesbian preacher. This was a church where the pushback was, well, we already welcome everyone, so why do we need to go through this process? The pushback was puzzling to my mother, who was the moderator at the time. And what a lot of questioning, listening, and curiosity revealed was that people were scared that becoming an officially open and affirming church would lead to a sudden influx of members. And that this congregation, this tiny, three new people per year Protestant congregation in one of the most Catholic areas of our region would get too big and would lose the intimate, know-everyone-in-the-pews feeling. Even as they lamented the shrinking congregation, they were being fed by the same sense, they were being fed by the sense of intimacy and familial connection and community that they felt could only be provided by a small congregation. Ironically, finding comfort in a small congregation size was likely an adaptation to the very decline in membership that caused it, but I digress. The point is that even when we know that we need to adapt, and even when we know that, like becoming open and affirming, a change is the right and just thing to do, we can still fear the losses that we associate with that change. And when we're scared, 
When we face uncertainty, our instinct is to look for predictability, to maintain or regain control. As leaders, we feel that as acutely as anyone else. United Parish is a church made up of incredibly responsible people. People who serve on committees and crunch numbers and teach church school and attend many weeknight meetings and deliver meals and do all of this as volunteers. So we gather all of our responsible minds together and we try to plan a late pandemic post-COVID program and worship year and we're met often with more questions than answers. We want to return to the familiar, familiar and we need to be safe. And then there's the Holy Spirit whispering to us that maybe we can try doing things a little differently, but we've never done it that way before. You know, we have a joke in this industry that the seven last words of the dying church are, we've never done it that way before. Ironically, or perhaps beautifully, when we look back through the history of our religious foreparents and traditions, from Moses to Peter to St. Francis to Martin Luther to enslaved peoples who adopted the religion of their captors and made it their own, to congregations that became LGBT-affirming in defiance of their parent denomination, to our year-plus of virtual worship and programming, we see that on the whole, we've rarely let that stop us. When we look closely, we discover that perhaps courageously trying new ways of being the church and trusting the Spirit to lead us is indeed the way we've always done it. That's the good news. We couldn't have predicted the pandemic, and we adapted. There's still so much we have yet to learn. All we can predict is that the year after next will likely look very different from whatever next year looks like. And therein lies the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift is that we get a year to experiment with how the church of the future could be, without being tied to continuing it in perpetuity. The gift is that we are so steeped in change right now, our grasp on the normal and on the before times has been loosened just enough that we can begin to see the possibility shining through the cracks in our fear. That's the good news. To quote Reverend Peary in his somewhat prophetic 2012 sermon, the gift is that our responsibility is not to understand or to predict or to control the future. What the church is becoming does not depend on our making it so. The Spirit of God is ahead of the church as it always has been, creating, agitating, opening new space, inviting. And our responsibility is to offer that expression of the church a hopeful welcome. Our responsibility is to recognize where the Holy Spirit is moving and to try to keep up. 